0: On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Callaway Golf. The Apex iron from Callaway defined a new category of player's irons. They combine the feeling and look of a forged iron with Callaway's leading distance technologies. With Apex, golfers experience an unmistakable leap in performance, and the new Apex is taking perfection even further. Callaway's 360 face cup, which makes everything better, generates industry leading distance in the new apex irons and the unmatched feel will get every golfer's attention this kind of power distance and control is not supposed to feel this great apex is in a class by itself new tungsten weighting in each iron fine tunes launch and trajectory throughout the set which delivers a new level of precision in a stunning player shape The new Apex is the ultimate forged player's distance iron. The unmatched feel and distance, playability and control are redefining the player's iron category. Again, once you experience an Apex, nothing else compares. This is Callaway's best for the best. See perfection in every shot with the new Apex at your local golf retailer or visit CallawayGolf.com and see what makes Callaway the number one iron in golf. Welcome to On the Verge. Today's guest is arguably the most important person that I've run into in my professional career. Uh, he's been an integral part of helping me build my business, build my career as a teacher, really helped me as a player. Uh, he's been a former PGA tour player, champions tour player, and designed probably the number one iron for the PGA for the PGA tour players for well, twelve years with Mizuno, Harry Taylor. Harry, how are you today, buddy?
1: Hey, great, great verge. Thanks for having me around.
0: Well, I'm uh first of all I want to say that I, I I am absolutely I've been aware of it for such a long time. I was talking with David Ingram about it uh not long ago, that there's nobody that has made a bigger impact on my career as a as a teacher and a player than you. And I was so much of what I've been able to accomplish as a as a coach and certainly as a player, not as decorated as you, but because of you so thank you for all that you've done to help me from my goodness from the time I was 25 and until today uh you a huge debt of gratitude so thank you for all that you've done
1: well thanks thanks I I didn't know I was that meaningful or important to you but it's always great to hear that and of course we've known each other for a long time through your early days Mm -hmm. when I met you out at at Hermitage Golf Course and of course you were with us out at Gaylord Springs Mm -hmm. and now you've gone on to to Innsworth here, which looks like a f- fantastic facility, and uh, it's great to be here, and, and uh, it's great to see that you're doing so well as your life has progressed
0: in the game of golf and in the business of golf. Well, I appreciate it. When you think back to the the, the first thing I think about when I think of, of you is obviously you're playing, but the thing that I remember the most about you was your love of golf club design, and the like I could always tell like you you flipped from being Harry Taylor, the guy that I knew, to the professional club designer when you started talking about the blades, and I remember at the end of the fourteen twenty nine era, and then we had the thirty threes and the thirty twos were the ones that i when I first got around you, and you were discussing the club and what you were doing to the design and the cut muscle of the thirty two and I just remember, like, that's when I met like the soul of Harry Taylor. How did you get involved in club design, and what what was it that piqued your interest about it so much?
1: Oh, it probably goes way back to when I was just a kid. I grew up at Old Hickory Country Club. Uh, My father was a PGA professional in Michigan, and. We had moved the family down. My mother's people were from just north of Nashville, a little town called Greenbrier. And my dad would come down and we would visit them during the holidays. And dad would always say, we need to move down here where the weather's much nicer than, of course, Michigan. And uh, so the job opened up at Old Hickory Country Club where he could be the general manager there. And the club professional there at that time was a guy named uh, Harold Eller. And Harold Eller, um, of course, Mike Eller's his son, Richard Eller was his son and a, a, a great family. Judy Eller mm-hmm. was a great woman player. And, and, uh, so Harold Eller took a liking to me and with, with me always being around the golf course because of my dad's work and I was 10 years old when that happened, um, I really got involved in being at his pro shop all the time. The new equipment would come in. I would be excited about seeing the new equipment. He'd let me open the boxes and I would look at the, Wilson was a very popular brand Mm -hmm. in Middle Tennessee. And I would see the new Wilson Staff Blades, the X-31s and and just really to look at the new golf clubs every year there was some kind of little uh, changes in the club. Uh, graphics, uh, coloring, and I guess I think that's what really got me so interested in golf equipment. And then as as I went on, I played for University of Tennessee, and and clubs were always super important to me. I got involved in classic clubs back in that time where you know it was the uh, the old Wilson staff sand wedges and and the Arnold Palmer designed by. Wilson putters and the McGregor, the great McGregor M85 woods mm-hmm. and and so just always being and liking golf equipment, um, and then when I first went on tour, uh, I was on Wilson staff and and uh, just always was a club geek. I just I love the head design. I love the shaft stories. I love the grips and. I was just a club guy. Mm-hmm.
0: I remember you, you, we had this conversation a long time ago in the driving range of Hermitage about how you felt like the designs were making the blades easier to hit than they were back in the seventies by reducing the length of the of the um, the neck in the uh, in the shafts, and you were able to move the weight down closer, so the center of the gravity wasn't so close to the heel. And that's one of the, I remember that like was the big deal. Of course, you designed other clubs, but the 33 was one that you felt like you did a pretty good job of making it more forgiving than it had been. And then the 32s really exploded that. What, how did you get in, involved in the club making as a tour player?
1: Um, I'll try to keep this as short as I can. So my first year to play the tour was 1980. I'm playing out on the tour, and there's a guy, a gentleman that comes up to me to introduce himself. His name was Gary Adams. Gary Adams had just started and founded the company TaylorMade about six months prior. Uh, he founded this company up in McHenry, Illinois, just north of Chicago. And he came to me, and he's explaining TaylorMade and what it was all about with the Metal woods and everything. And I said, yeah, I've seen those clubs, and it's a great name. And he says... Well, that's what brings me to you," he said. "I've started this company, and we've named it TailorMade. and it's really uh, a play on words where we're going to tailor make a golf club to you. And there, I don't have a tailor in the company, and you must be the best playing tailor in the world. You're the only one on tour, and from that point." He and I got to be friends, buddies. We shared a lot of information. And and I'm just a kid. I'm 24 years old out on the tour. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, we talked about how he could promote his product, uh, future designs of product, just where he was going with his company. And that's really what first got me involved in When I first, I said, Gary, here's what I can do immediately to help you. And it's to help promote your brand on the PGA Tour with the best players in the world. There's no doubt a metal wood does have scientific advantages over a solid uh, persimmon wood-headed club. And so more and more people, I was good friends with Ken Venturi. He was the lead golf guy. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed like when early guys with the metalwood, a, a Billy, a Dave Stockton, a, uh, a, Bobby Clampett, uh, whoever the early guys were with the metalwoods,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Ken Venturi would always say, Hey, notice he's using one of those new metalwoods. And that really helped launch because we didn't have the money to promote. Sure. And that helped launch it. And as TaylorMade was starting to move along, um, I got involved early with Gary and the engineers that he had helping him design the new product. He could see that I had a real interest in metalwoods, mm-hmm. and the first club that I ever did kind of on my own with, with the help of these other guys was the, uh, the original tour spoon, which was the mm-hmm. first good players, three wood yeah. stronger than just a three wood. And we called it a tour spoon and it was a very popular club and, from there, I just would get involved in metalwood design, iron design. Not that I was smart enough to do it at all by myself, mm-hmm. but the tool makers and the engineers that I worked with, they taught me a lot. And through my my long run with TaylorMade, uh, that's what first got me involved in club design, you know, well before
0: mm-hmm. the Mizuno situation. Interesting. Were you involved in the the, uh, the first, like, Forged cavity, like the TP iron, the Tor preferred iron, that was hollow in the hollow in the in the head, but it looked like a blade.
1: Uh, a little bit, a yes, little bit. yes, because we we knew that the the stainless steel uh, hollow wood shaped clubs, we knew how much of an advantage that was over traditional uh, wood or persimmon, and we knew we wanted to get that technology into an iron somehow. And so we, at TaylorMade, we had various hollow-headed irons that were well forerunners of all the hollowness you see now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was something that we knew that technology had to be brought on down into, especially long irons at first. Mm-hmm. And of course, we brought it on down typically around a seven iron. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that. That uh, and and how we used to do it, as far as the body of the golf club being still stainless steel, and then the face plate, we would make that maybe out of a forged material, or actually a forged stainless steel.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. When you look back on all of your club designs, what was your favorite iron that you ever were a part of making?
1: Well, f- for me, uh, through my years at Mizuno, doing all those irons. Uh, was probably the MP60. The MP60 for me was a, as you'd put it in the playing position, it had a uh, very traditional look, a thinner top line, uh, not not too much offset, but slight. And it was, I called it a half cavity back. Mm-hmm. The, the sole of the club was very traditional, wasn't too wide of a sole, but I did have a little bit of, as you would, about half, about, a third of the way up the blade, from the sole of the club going up the back of the club, there was a small cutout that gave the club a little bit of perimeter weighting, mm-hmm. but you could still work the ball easily. Uh, forge golf club, uh, ten twenty five, and um, to me, that was my favorite iron that I ever designed. I used that golf club for, gosh, over six years. Yeah. I think, you know got my tour card many times with that club and you know had some of my best finishes ever on tour Mm -hmm. with that look and you know i had good players on tour that that used it and and uh and if you look back through the sales of the club uh the mp60 was one of the it was in the mp line and it was one of the best
0: sellers we ever had that's interesting I, i totally i remember the 30 was like the the precursor to the 60 as it became to that the forged cavity it was so solid Uh, and I remember talking with you about the feels of irons and how I you know being left handed there prior to actually you designing them there was really no players left handed iron it was ping I2 Tommy Armour 845 and then anything in that like that was cavity backed and then you came along and you said the difference is that like when you hit the cavity back, it feels like you're hitting a tennis racket. It's the the sweet spot's wide, but you really can't tell something. And when you hit this blade, it's gonna feel like you hit it out of a bottle of water. It has a different feel to it. And I thought that was so profound. And then because I was such a high speed player, you banged into me and, and you were right, that I did not need to play a cavity back because I was have too many jumpers. I needed that forged steel. And the the blade ish to give me consistency in the, the the launch and the spin and not that hot spot. And it cost me a lot at the very end of what I'd consider my section playing days, because I just would occasionally just hit six iron instead of one ninety two. I'd hit it two hundred eight. And uh, did you did you feel like that was a major role in what you did? You brought to the players iron and helped the guys on the tour uh, navigate when it comes to their their equipment. Well, I will say,
1: and I don't want to talk about me here, it's not me, but I was unique. I was very unique in what I was doing with being a member of the PGA Tour and also working for a golf club company where I was very involved, leading a lot of the projects of what that golf club company might be developing at that time in an iron, or a wood, or a wedge, and, uh, and, and as, as much as you would want to use iron Byron's and different types of mechanical testing to make sure the blade was solid from heel to toe and the weighting was proper and everything about it was good, through my life of always being a competitive player and a a good player, I would trust my judgment, I would trust my feel more than anybody to go out with great range balls, new premium range balls. Mm -hmm. And they weren't range balls. Of course, I was using a premium golf ball. And to hit those balls and just to feel it, to watch the divot, to to see how the club was digging. I always thought one of the best things that I had about golf club design was understanding how the bounce should be, the leading edge, the camber of the leading edge, and the trailing edge to know how a club should enter the turf and exit the turf. If, if, If I designed the club properly and then the player was coached properly, to be able to swing the club on plane, sure, this thing should work. I saw many good-looking designs to me that didn't have enough bounce or had too sharp of a leading edge, that the club just couldn't perform. Even though you might have a awesome golf swing, the club just wasn't designed properly on the sole to really perform to its best. But I think being because there just weren't the club designers. That I was dealing with, or that was in in my time frame, you know, they were engineers, yeah. basically engineers. And as I look at people that I help bring into the business, like a Bob Vokey, Bob was like me. Scotty Cameron was like me. We're more of artists. Yeah. we're not engineers. We we weren't CAD CAD operators. But you could hire those guys but i was always a better than average drawer i could draw on a piece of paper what my mind was thinking mm-hmm. and then i would from there we'd go to a cad or, or and we would draw it in there and we'd have prototypes made and uh, and from there from there it could happen it could it could come to life but but i think being a player mm-hmm. was a huge help for me yeah. and just being a club guy and And knowing how the top line should look, how the roundness of the toe should be, uh, just the offset, you know, as, as much as people think, well, better players really don't want offset. Well, you put a club down there without offset your eyes so used to seeing some offset it almost looks like there's onset yeah you put it down there where the leading edge is in line with the left side of the hosel for a right-handed player yeah. it almost looks like it's scoopy yeah like the like the blade is out in front mm-hmm. so i think there needs to be slight slight offset yeah. um but being a player being a a good player, mm-hmm. I think was a huge asset for me because it's it's easy for me to think a recreational player or a, a player that's not yet re- reached his ability to really be a skillful player, it's easy to think how he needs help, mm-hmm. whether if he needs help to get the ball in the air, whether if he does need perimeter weighting to hit the ball straighter. Uh, but advanced players like you or tour players are top section players um if you can have a club that's more of a blade type solid back you can maneuver the ball Mm -hmm. better yeah you can maneuver it left to right right to left or you can the the trajectory is really the important thing to be able to do
0: well i think you have a unique perspective on this this issue because of being a pga tour player and a designer of clubs for a very long time the game seems to be in a pretty unique spot right now with the golf ball flying as far as it does, with as little spin as it does. So it takes less talent to drive it as far and as in play. And there's always been the advantage of the longer hitter. You know, Arnold Palmer was longer, Bobby Jones was longer, Jack was longer. I mean, you know, Greg Norman was longer, now Tiger, and then Rory, Dustin, Brooks, Kepka. The length has always been an issue to, to separate greatness. But it just seems like right now there's so much less talent required to drive the golf ball in play than it was in your era. How important is this this moment in time where there's boutique balls that are being played that you can't buy, that are being specifically de- designed for certain players of high club head speed that give them an extra 20 yards just because they they have that boutique ball? It's unregulated, so to speak and then the the, the athletes are bigger and stronger. Do you feel like it would be better for us to change the driver, the ball? What would be the easiest way, or do you think that we're never going to be able to do that? Wow.
1: What about that question? Wow. That's a heck of a question, Virgil, and that's that's something you and I could sit here and talk about really for hours. And I'm one of those guys – that I always want the PGA tour to be able to same equipment is played on the PGA tour that you and I play with. Yeah, I would hate to see the tour have to go to a regulated uh, limited distance flight ball because, you know, look, you and I've played golf together. You can hit the ball a long way. I can hit the ball a very short way but I hit the ball very straight. Very precise. So that's that's the, that's you're going to hit the ball 50 yards past me, whatever it is. Um, I'm going to hit the ball still 260, 270, wherever I'm hitting it now. But I'm awfully lucky that in my time when I was growing up, the time of the Hale Irwins and Lee Trevinos and Tom Kites and Lanny Watkins and and, and Ben Crenshaw's yeah. guys that really knew how to massage the ball and hey, don't ever think I'm I'm placing myself sure, with those guys. Yeah. I just those were the guys I looked up to and I saw how they played. And with my game right now, uh, I can still drive the ball really straight. But that was so critically important for me. As I was playing collegiate golf and tour golf and golf where I played, I saw that I better find one shot that I could hit. My shot was a slight cut. The course I grew up at, it was a cutter's golf course. Trouble was always to the left. So I could aim it down the left side with a cut. I had the whole fairway to play, to, And I had this little straight ball to a little cut. I was so confident in it. If there was a lake down the left side, I could aim it right down that lake's edge and slide it back into the fairway. If I was playing 18 at TPC Sawgrass, even though that's a perfect draw hole, God, not for me. I can't do it. I'd take it right down the water's edge and cut it back into the fairway. Mm -hmm. But I knew I could do it. I knew I could do it. I perfected that shot. And... And when we start talking about golf shots, uh, I just think it's critically important for somebody that's going to play at a higher level. You know, they'll say on TV, well, he can draw it and cut it at will and put it pretty tough under the pressure. You better have that one shot that you can set up to and know you're going to do it. And as far as the golf ball goes, if I was going to change anything, I really don't think it's the golf club or the shaft are the irons, are the wedges, are the grooves. I think if anything that's gotten really super long and hot and exciting, it's a golf ball. Yeah, I mean, this golf ball is not spinning. And these guys that have a certain club head speed, mm-hmm. if you don't have the club head speed, you're not going to see these dramatic changes. I can take my little game and I can take – the top five premium drivers and the best ball there is and I can go out and hit them and I'm just looking for five yards, six yards. Give me anything. I'll hit these things and they're all within a yard or two of each other every time. Yeah. But with somebody like you, with a club speed, you know, a club hit speed that can get over... Probably
0: 115, 1- wouldn't you say?
1: 115 in there. It, it's amazing what happens. Yeah. When you're able to compress that ball and get that club, that... that Speed up and get the ball launched up in the air. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable.
0: It's like there's an exponential gain right around 115. It is, and
1: and and the younger boys and the way things happened. I think it was 1991 when John Daly won that PGA yep. Championship at Crooked Stick. That to me changed the golf world. Yep. because it took it from playing position golf how I'd grown up playing, to really become in a more of a macho game where, hey, I'm going to knock it over that bunker. I'm going to go over that dog leg. I'm going to do these certain things that I can do now. If I happen to hit it in the rough, I'll still get it on the green, two putt. But if I do happen to catch a fairway, now I can go right to the pin. Yeah. And to me, that's what happened. But I would say it's the ball more than – the golf clubs.
0: Do you think that if they uh, made the driver hit 375 instead of 460, did that make a difference, or 390, reduce the size of the sweet spot? Uh,
1: I think that would that would probably, for the lesser-skilled player, it would for sure make them hit it shorter. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, the sweet spot is not as large. Uh, they're going to hit it more. When they do hit it off, the sweet spot gets smaller. They're going to miss a sweet spot. It's definitely going to make the ball fly shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it would. I think it would.
0: So I thought that of all the things, if we were afraid to do anything with the ball, and we've never really regressed in golf, but it, it might be necessary. I always thought if we made the driver head 375 to 390, and made it so that the highest lofted club you could have is 58 degrees or 56 degrees, <clears throat> that that would certainly make things a little more difficult and bring a little more, especially the skill that Sevi had at the 56 that is no longer... I'm obviously he would have been awesome anyway. But, I mean, the guys that can do stuff you know, that was 62 degrees and 64 degrees that he could do with 56, it just takes way less talented with a square face than it did the, you know, opening the face up. In- it's
1: unbelievable. What The point you're bringing up is so critically true. I can remember back when the 60-degree wedges were really starting to get popular. And I remember I was out on the tour. If I was playing that year or not, I don't know. But there were certain guys that I paid a lot of attention to. When it came to short game, I was lucky enough to have Lee Trevino on my staff at TaylorMade for three years. And, you know, I learned so much from that guy playing practice rounds with him and he'd show me things. And then there was there was guys that were not less popular, great players like a Hubert Green. Mm -hmm. Hubert Green had such unbelievably good hands and on the little short shots bunkers pitches chips you know he would get right down to the metal he'd get right down to the end of his grip and he'd say hey Harry why do you need a 60 why do you need a 58 why do you need look at this he said see this wedge here it's maybe 56 it's maybe 55 to 56 but look if I need a 58 there it is if I need a 60 there it is he never had too much bounce on his club so he could he mm-hmm. can massage that club open enough, and with without being that much bounce, the club could open without bringing the leading edge too yeah. high up off the ground. Mm-hmm. But you are right, those and, and we see it today. You watch the PGA Tour. These guys, they can't hardly make a bogey. I've never seen such magicians yeah. getting this ball up and down from impossible lies. Yep. But you're right, there's so much... Variation in the loss, the bounce, it's a science to know what's your what's your wedge to play with. Mm -hmm. Um, But that it is a skill that was once there that and also what's happened, golf courses are so much better now. Turf conditions are perfect. Even public golf courses, turf conditions. You know the ball sitting up there, nice. Mm -hmm. Even if it's in the rough, there's there's some cushion underneath. Absolutely. So you can get these clubs underneath it. Uh, But the 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 fifty eight to sixty, the sixty two, those wedges, where you have to just use a 56 to do it all has made it
0: much easier yeah i think that that would be if they don't want to change the ball if they just did that i think that would, that would that would separate the the greatness of players a little bit. because i think it's starting to get so crowded in the what we call great and it's really there's less skill required now to be the greatest as it pertains to shots it's, now it's just straight ball and it hit really hard, and they're tremendous at it. But if you, all of a sudden, you took the 56 degree was the highest lofted club you could have in your bag. Whew. Buddy, that would have some people freaked out, man. There'd be people having a bunker shot with anything less than a 60 degree in their lifetime, you know, that are out there right now. Boy,
1: you, you are right. I mean, you look at this Jordan Spieth, how awesome he is chipping and pitching and bunker play. And, you know, it's... You're right. If you took his
0: 60 away from him, he'd feel like he's going to everything with a 9-iron. Yeah. It'd be really interesting to see how that would work. I think it would put if he was still healthy enough, I mean, that would give Tiger such a huge advantage. Again, if they made, like, the ball just a little bit, something, make the driver head smaller, because it would just bring out the, the pure ball strikers and the, the magicians with their hands. You're right. The, you could make
1: that club head smaller, but the great players are still going to be great.
0: Oh, yeah. Because
1: they're going to still find the center of that club face more than anybody else. And uh, would it uh, – people would still swing just as hard. It would – you know, talking about all this golf, I'll tell you, this Brooks Kepka has really been somebody I've watched, I've studied his mental side of it. He plays golf with a chip on his shoulder. And for some reason – I just love it. Yeah. I just love watching that guy, watching his facial expressions, and watching him attack a golf course. It's 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 very interesting. It's entertaining. I love to watch that guy play.
0: He's great for golf right now too, because you know, for a while it was so Tiger dominant and how he was, and then we started to love these these younger guys, Thomas, Spieth, Rory, because they were so insightful and they were giving us. They were, like, giving us, like, what was going on in their head. Tiger wouldn't give you anything. Norman wouldn't really give you anything. Duvall never gave you anything. But, like, all of a sudden, Speeds like, well, this is what I was thinking on 13. They used to never say that stuff. But they, that that's kind of gotten old, too. It'd be interesting to see, like, Kepka gets in there, and he's, like, doesn't have any thoughts. And he's ready to tear your head off. And he doesn't care what you think. And... And he doesn't really talk much. So he's like more towards Tiger, but not quite Tiger. But he's not as open and forthright as McIlroy and Spieth and JT. He's a unique bird. Uh, I was watching some telecast,
1: and it was showing him. And he made this statement. He said, why shouldn't I win? I'm the strongest guy out there, and I'm the most mentally tough person on the golf course. And, you know, he's got a point. And he truly thinks that and he probably is the strongest guy out there and and he got to be a pretty mentally tough guy yeah. to be able to do what he does in these majors major after major yeah. it's it's he is he is somebody i really enjoy watching
0: yeah well you you're in this unique spot right now because you got a chance to probably watch the the very end of hogan and then the the premier years of Arnie and Jack and Tom Watson, and then Greg Norman and Faldo, and then as you phased out of PGA Tour World when Tiger got there to see the, the Tiger Rory, you've had a chance to see, literally outside of Bobby Jones maybe, most of the people that we consider the greatest golfers of all time, you've had a chance to be around. Who are the people that stand out to you of those greatest players ever, that were just something different. Wow. Man. You know, you're, you're right. You're right, Virgil.
1: I, I've been lucky enough. I never got to see Ben Hogan hit balls. Uh, but the guy probably in, in my realm of me watching hit balls off the ground and being able to tell me what he was thinking and what he was doing and it was very difficult to get close to this guy. He, he wasn't always the the happy go lucky that guy that you thought he was. But Trevino was was just different. And he could compress the ball off the turf like nobody I ever saw. Hmm. He could and and not only I thought that, but Hogan was a huge fan of Lee Trevino. When Hogan became older and the Ben Hogan company was still in its heyday, they would come up with a new set of irons. And he would say, I want you to take them down and let Lee hit these. At this time, Lee was yet on the tour. He was still working at a public facility and Mm -hmm. trying to get better. And he he had known of Lee, and he would say, Take those down there and let me know what he thinks about these, and they would report back to. Interesting. So, so that's when I heard that story, and I heard that story from a guy that was one of uh, Ben Hogan's close friends. He worked on the tour back when I was first out on tour. His name was Ronnie McGraw. I worked for uh, the Ben Hogan Company, and uh, that that told me that. For for a Ben Hogan to have that kind of respect for Trevino's ball-striking ability, that was pretty amazing. So as I watched Hogan, of course, Tom Watson in his prime was as pure as it would come. I mean, he could could do things with, with balls that were unbelievable. I was lucky enough to play golf with... I had Nick Faldo on my staff for a long time, and to watch... How he was a technician around a golf course, even though he had tremendous size, big man mm-hmm. still didn't play big man didn't, golf didn't play golf like it's played today, mm-hmm. he was a technician, he knew how to hit it down this way, that way, tremendous short game, great putter he had it all he he could he was the perfect golfer to win major championships yeah and and then today you know. Of course, my last year to play the regular tour was 95, and I played a few years on the Champions Tour. But um, uh, it's now, and you're around these guys more than I am now, the the better, the tour players, the better players, and just how they can compress the ball with this clubhead speed. Because Trevino was doing it without that much clubhead speed, and now these guys, to be able to compress the ball and do what
0: they do, Wow, there are a couple of experiences that I had that are so profound in the sound of the golf ball. Henrik Stenson hits a golf ball so hard that it literally shakes the earth that you're standing on. It is so impressive. Like I just remember being with Brant and listening to him just thunder four irons off the ground. I'm like, do you feel that, Sneds? He's like, ah, does my does my ball feel like that? Like, no. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it doesn't. You're right. You're right because. And and everybody
1: knows these stories, but these young guys now, they're not so much gonna play baseball, football, basketball, and if they're not so good, they'll say, "Well, I'll try golf." I mean, these young kids that you're yeah. that you're coaching now, teaching now, they come right up saying, "I'm gonna be a golfer." Where when I was on the tour, you know, if you were five nine or ten or eleven and weighed hundred and seventy five pounds, say that was what was there. Mm-hmm. Now I think the average is six two or six three, yeah. you know, one hundred and ninety pounds, and they're working out. And they're big guys. It's a different, it's a different breed of golfer today, than what it was back in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. It's just different. Very
0: well, you also have the unique perspective of the difference between the nineteen eighty six Masters and the two thousand nineteen Masters, and the the profoundness that it was for Jack and Tiger. When you think back to those two, those two profound victories, they're very different in what they meant. But at the exact same time, they almost transcend the game now, both of them. Yeah,
1: it was for Tiger to do what he did. I said, man, the stars were aligned. Tiger was Tiger, and it, it just worked out, and it worked out great for golf yeah it was great for golf very few people were not pulling for Tiger to pull that thing off and mm-hmm. when it happened it was huge for golf, of course, when Nicholas did it back in eighty six it was huge for golf um and you're right, it's just as time goes on, those are certain wins that everybody's gonna remember and the importance of it and where you were when it was happening. Um, this tiger's a difficult one right now to figure out, though. You know, that he looked like he was going to become Tiger of old once again, and it just kind of fizzled. Mm-hmm. I, and that I don't want to take anything ever away from Tiger Woods, my gosh, but um, you know, you could tell by watching him swing this. The snap just wasn't there. It was, you know, if he's not telling us that something's bothering him. But just this week, when he this last week when he played. Didn't look right. He, no, you knew it didn't look right. He, you, you could see it. He, he was, uh, there was a. Uh, a level
0: of timidity coming through the ball. It wasn't quite like.
1: It wasn't firing at uh, it. It was, he was making a nice swing. But it was just a tempoed swing mm-hmm. it wasn't an aggressive going after it brooks kepka kind
0: of yeah. move at it yeah no doubt there was a level of freedom that he played with at the masters that he had not and he did it at the match play too i mean you could see this game was going in the right direction headed into the masters but it was interesting how it was it had that explosion in it at augusta and I, I personally believe, and I have no idea to know this, but I personally believe that he was so in the zone on Sunday and he was swinging at it so freely and so beautifully that he hurt himself and he just didn't feel it, and he's not really recovered.
1: Could be. Could, could very well be, and he probably needs this break and, you know, to give himself a chance to... Sometimes I wish there was a way that he could... I know he still has to work out because that's his routine. That's what he's done. But it just seems like that needs to be kind of lessened. Not as much, not as aggressively. You know, still keep yourself in shape, but um, his body needs to
0: heal more. Yeah, no doubt. When you think back to your playing days, I I just remember, I've probably played with you a hundred times, and you've made 65s look so easy. It was literally... I oftentimes said around like, how in the world does the world not know Harry Taylor? Because it was just insane how like, you couldn't have shot higher than 65. I remember we shot 63 at Hermitage and the President's Reserve, and it was literally the easiest 63 I've ever seen in my life. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. How did that happen? And then there's obviously so many people better, not so much like obviously, but you're like, how did Greg Norman... How was he so much better than you? What do you when you look back on your playing career? It was you were a truly spectacular player. What do you feel like was your your what got you to the tour and what do you think as you look back on it prevented you from winning at a level on the PGA Tour?
1: You know it's a that's a it's something that I think about a lot because Of everything I've almost ever done in my life, I've always been pretty successful, uh, except playing the PGA Tour. And I don't know if it was really my, uh, um, I was confused. I love the golf equipment business. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I love the golf, the golf club design business. I like the promotional end of it. I like the marketing end of it. I liked, I liked it a lot. And I knew that the harder I worked at that business, the more successful I guaranteed I would become. Playing the tour, it was like I could practice my face off. I could do everything I was supposed to do. But it did not guarantee me success. Mm -hmm. And I think it drove me a little crazy. And the only reason I was able to play as long as I did with what I had I had a great. I had the right kind of mind for golf. Mm-hmm. Bad shots didn't drive me crazy. I was able to get over it, relatively quick. Yeah, I hated a bad shot mm. as much as anybody, but it didn't. It 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 didn't kill me. I knew that there was another shot coming, and if I hit a bad shot, now my next goal was to get that ball up and down, make a par. Let's make a par. If you get in trouble, if I, if I did drive it in the woods. I had to get it back out in the fairway and at the worst make a bogey. Mm. That's probably why I had great success at the PGA Tour School was I knew if I could if I could play my six rounds of golf when I was playing it was six rounds. Yeah. If I could play that and not make a double, I'd make it. And of the of all the times I made it, there was only one time I made it when I made a double. Hmm. All my secret was it was back to my, how I played golf. I drove it in the fairway. I would look at the pin. I would go to the middle of the green. I would two putt and move on. And when I'd get to par fives where I could get close to the green or up there close, that was my birdie holes. And for some reason I always had good luck on par threes. Par threes was something I knew threes were always good to put on a card, Mm -hmm. but a two was exceptional. And to me, it was a numbers game. I tried to go around a golf course with threes and fours. I tried to eliminate fives, never make a six. And, and as I would play things like a tour school, I would just have a, a, a model I would go by, and it was very successful. I think I made it eight different times. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a great qualifier. But when I would get to the tour... Typically, I always had other things I was doing, If making sure that whatever person was on my staff, with whatever company I was with, making sure they had their stuff, making sure everything was okay. I'd play a practice round. I'd play nine holes in the morning, nine holes late in the afternoon, and in the middle, I'd do my work for the company. Hmm. And I loved playing the tour, but I actually think I more loved working for those golf companies, and seeing them come successful, yeah. become successful. And if I was out walking somewhere and happened to see a, a, a rack of clubs, a bag rack of golf clubs, and I'd see one of my sets that I designed in that bag, and that was me. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah, that's
0: I awesome. Did,
1: I didn't need to talk to the guy. I just, I just liked to see that my clubs
0: were there. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we, we spent a lot of time talking about what it is that's made your impact on golf and, and whatever so great. And that takes a lot of energy. It took a lot of energy to be a great player and a, and a club designer. So we always talk, try to do the second half of the show about things that you do to recharge your batteries. And for most people, it's the things that bring a lot of people together, like sporting events, live music, and and family events that you know bring together great food and what have you. When you think of... Um, Music. What's your What's your favorite music? Oh, man. 60s and 70s music.
1: 60s and 70s, you know, um, still today, I mean, I go to all these concerts. I mean, this year's been, been great. I've had the Elton John concert at Bridgestone. I've had ELO concert at Bridgestone. Uh-huh. Just recently, I had Queen and Adam Lambert. And those concerts were three of the... Actually, the best three concerts anybody could ever go to. Uh, The Happy Together Tour was just at the Ryman. I'm there. That's a 60s deal. Um, uh, Just a week and a half ago, I was in Graceland in Memphis. Mm -hmm. We had the, the tribute artist finals all over the world. They have these 20 different competitions. And the people that win these 20 competitions, they all come to Graceland during Elvis's death week. Oh, wow. And they have this this unbelievable elimination competition, and they crown the world champion tribute artist. So Sandra and I, Sandra's my wife, of course, of 42 years, and uh, we go down every year and watch that. And uh, it's, it's right across the street from Graceland. They've built a beautiful theater, and uh, the judges are great. I mean, you'll have... Priscilla Presley's a judge and some great people that knew Elvis. And um, so we are a music family. Mm-hmm. We go to a bunch of concerts. We love old, old groups like Chicago and these groups. Yeah. And, and not that we don't like modern music, but, you know, I'm kind of trapped in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. You like the Eagles? Oh, love him, you know. And now that
0: Vince is with them. That even adds a little oh, an extra yes, layer to it.
1: It's it's so great. One of the best concerts I've ever been to was when the Eagles came and they played. Uh, well, I guess it might have been last year. Mm-hmm. They played at uh, Grand Old Opry House. Yeah. What a what an unbelievable and Vince has just added so much to him.
0: Yeah, no question about what it. What
1: a perfect guy for them to go find at his age, his experience. Uh, his ability to sing and play a guitar—what group wouldn't love to have a Vince Gill?
0: Yeah, I think that Vince gets overlooked when it comes to great guitarists. I really think he's one of the ten best in the world. He is so good, so good.
1: Well, it's it's
0: it's proof. I mean, he's
1: he's awesome, and um, he's done so much with with that
0: career. What a career! Yeah, no question. I'm interested about the Queen Adam. Lambert show. That was really good. They, they, he rocks it. Unbelievable. And and Adam Lambert
1: came out and really did the right thing. Right off the bat, he came out, he says, look everybody, I so appreciate you being here. But he says, I want everybody to know uh, uh, Freddie Mercury's not going to be here tonight. And I sure don't think I'm Freddie Mercury. I'm here to help bring uh, just to to sing his songs and and to honor what he what he brought to the musical world and uh, did that right off the bat which i thought was great yeah that's great and adam lambert is such a unbelievable talent when it comes to vocals yeah i mean this guy it's the range is unbelievable the highs he can go and and what he can do and of course you know the the two founding members of Queen was there, uh, Roger Taylor, the drummer, and of course Brian May, right? Brian May, the guitarist. You know, they were so great, yeah. and they're they're both very gifted in vocals, also. So it was it was a packed house, and it was really exciting.
0: Yeah, when you uh, think about your favorite sports, and I know you're a big UT fan, and and you you love you know who doesn't love college football in the South? What a when you think about college football and UT, what's your greatest memory about UT football?
1: Oh my goodness gracious! Well, we have to go back a ways because, of course, we've uh, we've been taking our lumps here the last ten years. But I just know this, Jeremy Pruitt, is gonna bring us out and bring it back. But doggone, the SEC is so tough. Oof. I mean, it's 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 hard to it's hard to get a 500 record out of the yeah. SEC anymore, especially when you got to play Alabama every year, Georgia every year, Ford every year. Um, but of course it was so exciting during the Peyton Manning days yeah. when Tennessee was, was, you know, a top five team. And, um, uh, I I'll, I'll date myself a bit here. My f- freshman year of school at university of Tennessee, I'll bring up, your your favorite school, Penn State. Uh, I went there first Tennessee game I go to in the backfield for Penn State was Franco Harris and Lydell Mitchell. Yeah, and we we were doing we did great the first half. We had them down. I forget twenty one to seven or something. But the great coach at Penn State. Eterno. Turno figured it out, went in, saw everything we were doing, came back out that second half, took care of business. Um, but that's some great memories. And uh, uh, my daughter went to school there, and we had season tickets for a long time at Tennessee. And there was there was just a lot of great times, and it's such a great experience to go to a game yeah. at the University of Tennessee, especially at night when you've got – and it's, it's such a knowledgeable fan base. Yeah, no doubt. They know what's going on. Um, but but um, going to the University of Tennessee, being a graduate of the University of Tennessee, and living in this state, it's really fun. It, yeah. gives, you, it gives you somebody to pull for. There's a reason you're pulling for them.
0: You graduated from there. Yeah. You're an alumni from there. Um, so it's, it's great. What's the greatest sporting event you've ever been to?
1: Ooh. <sighs> man man oh man I'm trying not to think of golf um it would probably still have to be golf I would say anytime you can go in person to the masters and see the greatest players in the world compete uh on a venue like that playing for arguably the biggest title in golf um that probably has to be my my most memorable
0: and and biggest thing. Uh, you know, to me, I've always held the uh, the Masters and Augusta National in such a high esteem, but I never felt anything like I felt at, a, at the Ryder Cup. Now I was there for the largest European comeback in, at Medina, and I've never felt the kind of energy that the Ryder Cup brings more so even than Augusta National. Augusta has like all the history and all the the awesomeness of it, but there's a different kind of hatred at the Ryder Cup that is good, uh, but I think it's trending in in a bad direction, but it's so awesome, the energy there. And to be a part of history, even though it was negative for the United States, was so like, this is, I cannot imagine what it was like on 17T, the last seven groups coming through, every event, I mean, every one of their matches was literally life and death to the event and one after the other a european would make like a 30 footer on 17 that part three and put europe in front and just when we like you're 10 to 6 10 to 7 11 to 7 10, 10 8 you know 11 9 11 10 11 11 and people are starting to freak out and then like you think it's going to be tiger and molinari clips him and i was just like oh my goodness i can't even believe what i'm watching but it was like the most remarkable amount of energy, like a whole team just kind of started to feed off each other and just starting from, you know, Roy McElroy's motorcade from his hotel that he over overslept and thought he was at Eastern time and it was on Central Time and Bear almost missed his tea time by like fourteen minutes. That was pretty pretty amazing. That was the most incredible golf event that I've ever been to and I've i I've never felt that kind of energy. But I, have you ever been to Ryder Cup before? I'm trying to
1: think, Virgil. Maybe I haven't. I I don't think I really have been to a Ryder Cup. I've I've been to everything in golf, but possibly not a Ryder Cup. Yeah. And I'm sure I, I can see what you're
0: talking about. That that would be a uh would be exciting. I can't imagine what it was like a Brookline. I mean, I bet that was just so magnificent. It's like to me the three biggest uh, Ryder Cups. To date that I can recall would be, and I know that the the right before I started paying attention to golf was the one the Europe beat the United States at Muirfield. That was the first time they beat us on American soil in a very long time, if not the very first time ever. But it was the time that we won at the 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 war on the shore when it, when it turned from like a just an exhibition to an event uh, at Kiwa Island then the one that we came back at Brookline, and then the one that they came back at Medina those are the three that stand out to me as majestic and moving and the one that was at Hazeltine last that had the great Patrick Reed Rory McIlroy showdown and that was a pretty compelling one too but man you could cut it with you could cut the tension with the chainsaw like I've never felt before in a, in a golf event when it came down to the end it was coming down to literally Tiger and Molinari and then Furick. and I can't remember who Furyk was playing maybe it was Martin Keimer and I was just like, they just kept going and going. Like, this is going to, it came down to the wire the whole way down until Keimer was Kymer and Furyk Keimer, uh made the putt on the last hole that made Molinari and Woods' match not important. But it was so, like, you could literally, the last six groups, I guess when Rose made that long putt on Mickelson, that was the first time that it looked like they had a chance. And then they just kept making putts on 17. It was pretty amazing. No doubt about it. Final question for you. What would be your dream foursome, and on what golf course would you be playing it?
1: Well, probably my all-time favorite course of, of any course, which is not surprising to a lot of people. But Pebble Beach is just uh, the course that I would pick. It's, it's just it's everything, scenic, beautiful, the weather, uh, history, it's got everything now. Who that would? Who I'd be playing with? Whew, man, that's a that's a that's a pretty good one. Um. Well, of course you want to you you always want to think maybe it's the best players in the world, but uh, uh, of course it would be great to to play with somebody like my dad. That would be great to 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 play with him I can remember his game I remember how he played Mm -hmm. and um, probably somebody like Harold Eller who taught me how to play Uh, such a good friend good guy uh, cared about me wanted me to really understand the game and learn how to play Um, and maybe maybe a, a very good friend of mine that passed away two years ago his name was Dennis McNeil He was um, a member at Old Hickory Country Club, and he and I played a lot of golf together at Old Hickory, and he was from that Pebble Beach area. Oh, yeah. And that area meant so much to him. And, uh, you know, a group like that doesn't have the Trevino's or Nicholas's or Woods. It doesn't have that, but these were just close friends that, that, Meant the world to me, and they always wanted me to become the best I could be. Yeah, and that would be a very meaningful group yeah. for me to play with. Yeah,
0: that's what it's all about, right there. What What makes you say Pebble Beach over Cypress Point?
1: Played them both a lot. Played them both a, a whole lot. I just think that Pebble. Um. I, I just think there's more. There's more shots at Pebble. There's more, um, at at Cypress Point, you know, you've got a a finishing hole like 18, where if you just wanted to use those two holes, the finishing hole at Cypress versus a finishing hole at Pebble Beach. I mean, it's, the finishing hole at Pebble Beach is the excitement. It's everything. The finishing hole at Cypress, Mm. disappointing. Um, And I just think as a whole, as a full venue, uh, I, I just think there's there's not a shot that's left unturned mm-hmm. at Pebble Beach, at Cypress, a lot of great holes on it, but I just think as a whole, Pebble's is a uh, is a much more well-rounded course, and not to say Cypress isn't a great all-time historical fabulous course. But I think Pebble Pebble has it. That's interesting.
0: I'd never really thought of it that way. I've played Cypress twice and Pebble Beach once, and I've been there uh, for an event also as a coach. And I, I think one of the things that captures my imagination the most about Pebbles, most people cannot fathom how small the greens are at Pebble Beach, and how like t- Tiger's two thousand U.S. Open to me is so remarkable, and so many of the stats that he put out there. But to know that he went bogey free around that golf course on Sunday, when it, when it was basically it was a boat race, it was over, and he just kept grinding it out, and the precision that he played it with with those smaller greens, that has to be one of the most incredible performances in all of golf history. It's just such a, and
1: and I've probably played Pebble, and the reason I've played it so much, of course, I played a lot of. AT&T's and tour events there, but right after the tour event, the AT&T, when it was called that at Pebble, uh, Mizuno had their World Pro-Am there, which I ran for Mizuno, Mm -hmm. and so we would go there the week after, and gosh, I did that for 13 years, and so we would play Pebble that week, I'd play it maybe four times, and we'd go play Cypress always at least once that week, and... um, playing those golf courses that much you really get a lot of respect for both and you really learn the courses because you just don't know what kind of weather can be coming in i've hit some of my all-time shortest shots ever when fronts have come in with sleet in them and and all that and and you know number seven you know i've hit i've hit many times five irons to that hole Wow. Which, you know, when you're talking about a 105 or 10-yard hole. Yeah. Downhill, to tr- too. To be trying to choke down and just chip it low, you know, because the winds are coming in at you, you know, 40, 50 miles an hour. Um, it's just that. And then to follow up 7 with a
0: hole like 8, 9, and 10, man. Yeah, 6 through 10 is as good of a walk as there is in golf. It is.
1: I, I can still remember the very first time I ever played it in 1980. I almost couldn't play it. Once I got to four, five, six, just along that coastline was just so beautiful. Yeah. And they, you know, they changed number five from mm-hmm. going up the hill to going down the hill, where the where the par three plays now yeah. is such a difficult hole from that back tee.
0: Oh, no doubt about it. I think the eight the eighth hole is the most majestic hole in golf. It's so amazing. It's so
1: unbelievable. And that cliff is so high and, and the green is so small (laughs) and you miss that. You miss that green to the left. That green is so fast back left to front, right. It's like lightning. Yeah. Um, just, I just never can say enough great things about Pebble beach. It's just so beautiful. Uh, but, um, I don't know, that whole that whole coast over there is not just Pebble. I mean, Monterey Peninsula, I mean, there is just, you know, Spyglass, just beautiful See, yeah, golf spyglass courses. Spyglass
0: is really good. Have you played Posse Tiempo? Oh, yeah. What do you think of that? I've not been there.
1: It's beautiful. Yeah. It's great. It doesn't get the recognition it should get because it's too close to those yeah. those other golf courses. But it's a, it's a fabulous golf course. Uh, it's uh, It's just... If you want to go someplace to golf, you know, and then you can slide on down to uh, Bandon Dunes, but that or slide, I guess, back up. Uh, yeah. uh, that's the place. Have you been there,
0: Bandon Dunes? I never have been there. Oh, Harry, you'd love it. It's so good. It really is magnificent. I say all the time, if I get one round, I'm going to play Cypress Point. But if you're going to give me a whole weekend, I'm going to Bandon Dunes. It's it's so good. Like five of the top ten public golf courses in the world are on property there. How about that? That's unbelievable.
1: That's unbelievable.
0: Like, I have like to me, I think Pacific Dunes is as good as it gets, period. But Bandon Trails, which is literally the best force first 14 holes of golf I've ever played. I mean, I've I just got done playing Pacific Dunes and Bandon. And I played out of my mind for me. Abnormally good, especially in 35 mile per hour winds. I played out of my mind, and I go to Bandon Trails day three of the tournament, and through the 13th hole, I'm sitting there thinking to myself <laughs> I cannot believe that this golf course is actually better than the two that are the most famous, and the last four holes, not so good. Now I know that they've re- redone them a little bit, but the last four holes of Bandon Trails was the biggest letdown after the greatest build-up of the first fourteen that I can ever remember. But Cor Crenshaw did an amazing job there. Old McDonald is great too, and then the the par three is, is spectacular. And a new golf course called the Sheep Ranch. That's Uh, that's being done by Gil Hans and Doke. I think they're doing a collaboration there. Spectacular.
1: Yeah, I got to get there. I'm I'm running out of time. I've got to get to a lot of the places I haven't played yet, while I still have enough game to enjoy enjoy golf. Yeah. And you know, there's places in Scotland that I haven't been to yet, and uh, so I got to get there. I got to get going.
0: Yep. You got to do it. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come join me on the Verge and talk about your life and talk about all the great things that you've brought to the game and, and you share with your, your playing ability and uh, obviously it's an honor to have you here so thank you very much for coming
1: Virgil thank you for having me and thank you for the kind things you said early early in this uh, broadcast that uh, I'm glad something I've done has been meaningful to you and of course I'm always there for you if I can help you I
0: appreciate it thank you for having me my pleasure thank you thank you ChromeSoft isn't just another tour ball. It's the golf ball that's changing how tour balls are made. When Callaway made a low-compression, low-spin tour ball, others said they might be onto something and tried to do the same. But they can't because ChromeSoft is the only ball engineered with graphene-infused, dual-soft, fast core for serious speed and unbelievable control around the greens. See for yourself why everyone is playing and loving ChromeSoft. Order the ball that changed the ball at CallawayGolf.com.